You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, well, it was the VIX versus the VAX for markets with, I mean, long-term optimism winning out over short-term fear. The seven-day average of new COVID cases in the United States is climbing in every single state. Hospitalizations for the virus are nearing a new high, about 80,000 people, with each day setting a new record since November the 10th. California Governor Gavin Newsom saying, look, he's pulling the emergency brake on reopening his state's economy. We've got new curfews in place across the US. We've got New York Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing that the country's largest school system will halt in-person learning entirely, all to help stem the spread of the virus that's already hitting the US and, of course, Europe and the rest of the world so hard. Of course, you'd actually never know it almost if you're looking at the equity markets. We had new record highs for the all-country world index. We had the Dow at a record high, closing just shy of 30,000. Investors rotating into value, into cyclical sectors. And it's all because of the longer-term bets, the positive vaccine news that's winning out in the end. Good news from companies racing to make this COVID vaccine, like Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. That was really where the heartbeat of the market was. So on Monday, we spoke about the outlook for the market. So Nafil Sanula is EIA Alpha Partners macro strategist and started by asking what he thought the biggest risks right here, right now were. Well, <clears throat> I think that there's, um, there's a couple dichotomies at play. Um, one, obviously, as you referred to, is kind of the path versus destination. And I think that dovetails into another one, which I've been thinking about, which is I call it the VIX versus the VAX. And the fact that uh, we got a huge vol crush after the election at the same time as getting a vaccine, two vaccines soon after, very potent cocktail to make the destination matter a lot more than the path, at least right now. And so, you know, the, 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 just the systematic flows from dealers in the, in the vol space in response to this vol crush, um, you know, makes, makes it very difficult for us to focus on anything but the destination. and. Mm. And, and the, the narratives will follow the price. So I, th I think the setup kind of remains there. Um, you know, we, we have the VIX expiration coming up this week. So there might be like a, a, a one to two week window to see, um, you know, do we, can we get anything deeper than these shallow little dips? 
But, um, you know, it's still a relatively constructive part of the calendar. And I don't think that the market will really worry too much about the path until we're closer to January. So basically, we had these two events that people were anxious about. One known timing event, that was the election. The other was just, would we get good news on the vaccine? We got both out of the way. And that was just two sort of sources of anxiety that just disappeared. Exactly. And, you know, um, you know, these, these are price insensitive flows, which is why oftentimes you see, you know, these overnight ramps, um, Europe kind of getting ahead of the, ahead of these flows. And, you know, it's 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 just nothing really to do about uh, what we feel in the market or what we feel about macro drivers and in, in the absence of news of, of different news. Uh, these dynamics will continue to materialize. So, for example, this is why, you know, the Nikkei has been one of our favorite plays for a while mm. um, because it's kind of levered to global growth and level, level, uh, levered to global trade. And it had a multi-year breakout uh, on, on, on the back of this vaccine news. So, you know, these are things that, um, you know, the, the narratives will fall the price. And I'm not quite sure we're at a point yet where things are truly stretched and, and kind of ready to slingshot back. So the Nikkei trade could continue, for example. I'm interested into your viewpoint on how much international focus will happen. We've got a call from Citigroup today saying the dollar's going to fall some 20% next year because of the vaccine coming out. It, is it time to look for international opportunities mm. when we have ramped up so high in valuation here in the United States? Right. We, we've, been, we've been pretty uh, involved in the international part of the market since about September. Um, and we remain relatively constructive there. Um, I think so. The, another dichotomy uh, that I think is pertinent here is, you know, what what's the difference between a vaccine type of reflation versus a, you know, um, fiscal type of reflation? I think I think you guys had a, a guest, John Turek, kind of talking about this recently as well. And I think the point there is, um, you know, let's let's think about it, right? What what was the what was a structural dynamic before COVID? It was still low growth. It was still low inflation. Um, just the ability to exit the COVID regime. In terms of the virus risk and, and activity uh, headwinds because of the virus risk, it, it, it brings us back to that regime. So I'm not sure that the vaccine is necessarily super inflationary. Um, so I think it, it would allow the Fed to remain um, quite quite easy. At the same time, as you know, I think one of the biggest shifts uh, during COVID has been for years and years and years, basically financial crisis until COVID. The only game in town to collect yield. And, and growth on an accelerating basis was the United States in the, in the large economies. And now that's China. Hmm. You know, the, the, the PBOC has kind of gone out of its way to maintain a, maintain a rates premium um, to the rest of the world. And so I think there's a large suck of capital to China, which I think, given the size of the, their economy and the yeah. opening of their bond market, it's, it's bearish dollar. 21% decline next year on the back of a VAX. I'm not so sure, yeah. but uh, we remain uh, bearish dollar and constructive on the rest of the world. I want to delve more into this question of what a vaccine reflation looks like. Of course, Carol, just breaking the news, Airbnb uh, filing for its IPO. We've seen tech and these growth stocks really uh, come off the boil over the last couple of uh, months. You know, we saw the underperformance today in the NASDAQ and the QQQ. If we get this sort of vaccine reflation, does that ultimately mean that at some point we just go back to prices trend, at which point the sort of low growth tech rally resumes again as people pile into them for their uh, secular uh, secular characteristics? It's a great question. Um, the way I kind of think about it is, you know, the, the most bullish scenario for fiscal would be a 50-50 Senate with um, Vice President Harris being a tie break. But even in that scenario, you have the, the, the centrist Democrats 
or the moderate Democrats, many of whom are actually relatively conservative, having kind of a swing vote type of dynamic. Um, you know, President-elect Biden's kind of um, his, his economic platform he kind of released today was very constructive along the lines of what, what we could do on the fiscal front. But in terms of implementation, um, it could be a little bit more difficult. And so what's that remind me of? It reminds me a lot of 2016. You know, we everyone kind of had the hopes of a huge, durable um, cyclicals rotation. And I, and I do think that this rotation can persist just like it did on the election 2016. But ultimately, unless it's unless it's reflected in like a, a, a regime shift in, in inflation and growth and most likely in the long end of the bond market, um, you know, it's going to go back. I think it'll probably have to go back to the, the status quo. What would change that is if we saw, you know, the straws already or the, the, the cats already out of the bag in terms of fiscal policy. Mm. Um, and even like what we saw today in terms of what, um, you know, Senator Romney was was discussing with with respect to uh, child care. Um, you know, assistance, those types of things becoming more normalized. That's a very different environment than, for example, coming out of the Obama um, right. uh, uh, inauguration. But it, it remains to be seen. That's why I think a lot of these questions are going to be far more relevant next year um, rather than right now. Of course, one asset class that has a continued great week, it's Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency, well past $17,000, a level that, of course, reminds many of the Bitcoin craze back in December 2017. So, I mean, what is driving Bitcoin new record highs? We discussed it with Catherine Coley, the CEO of Binance US, and started by asking her if this was a Bitcoin rally or actually a broader crypto rally. We are seeing a Bitcoin rally right now, and there's even more unique factor that we're seeing in this it's it's not the it's not the funding. The perpetual premiums are are still at a low. This is really being led by spot buying, and so this is one of the the greatest indicators that we're seeing hmm. that this is purely led by spot buyers of Bitcoin in size. Now you, you may say it's a little bit quiet, and uh, I hate to say the secret here, but most of the institutional buyers are going to be quiet until hmm. they're in their position. So that's what we're really excited to be able to see. We've had huge volumes across the board, across all exchanges, uh, seeing lots of spot buying in Bitcoin, and there's more to come. One institutional player, pretty big one, Ray Dalio, tweeting out saying he might be missing something, but he, he, he notes that he says he doesn't see Bitcoin being an effective currency, and I understand that part, but he says largely his issue is that it's not a good store of wealth. What are the other institutional investors getting and seeing in terms of a store of wealth that Ray Dalio is not yet seeing? You know, if I had to pick a kickball team and there was Paul Tudor Jones on one <laughs> side with Stan Druckmiller and Ray Dalio on the other side, it'd be a really tough, tough decision. But I think there's we're seeing significantly more institutional buy-in. The validation of this market, of this asset class, for the first time ever, we have not only regulators, we have banks, we have these key macro investors, but we also have congressmen and women that are now well aware of what Bitcoin is, making sure their contingencies are well aware too. And so on the regulatory side and the idea here that a lot of uh, folks in this space were sort of waiting for a little bit more of a green light from, at least here in the U.S., uh, from the SEC and others to uh, allow for, I guess, broader uh, financial vehicles to invest in this. Do you actually think that that could be on the horizon? You know, we're going to see some changes over the next uh, few months with the administration. That's definitely going to take into account possible changes inside the regulation. But for us, uncertainty, we can still build through it in a decentralized manner in a global pandemic. Bitcoin and the industry that's blossoming out of it has been able to be resilient. 
I want to go back to that first topic about the seeming quietness within the sort of media and public attention. Um, you, uh, from your perspective, looking at retail activity, how does the buying that you see compare to late 2017? Late 2017 was more of a, a panicked FOMO, going in not aware of what was happening. Since then, we've had another halving, uh, which has led to an, a robust amount of education, as well as getting people aware of what it means to have a two-way market. You, you were able to see some, some bearish periods of time where people were able to you know, sharpen up their risk management, as well as build out mature infrastructure that really can handle this amount of demand. We're right now cusping the all-time market. And this is because as time has gone on, there's been continued amounts of mined Bitcoin. So it's exciting to see other all-time highs, even if we've not yet broken through that 20,000 mark. When you have players such as Paul Tudor Jones saying, I'm going to commit about a percentage, just 1% of my money into Bitcoin, that that's a level of demand is just so outweighing what we see in terms of supply at the moment. And this sort of feels as though why we're seeing this drive higher. If we are getting the institutional players finally coming in, what level of price do we continue to see it push up at? I mean, we've had like one, two, three parabolic moves. Does, do we continue to see it push past 20,000 or anyone calling the caps and, mm -hmm. and, and the tops quite yet? Yeah, it's been seven strong weeks since we were around the uh, 10,000 mark and now up to the upper uh, 17s. Um, and you're seeing the likes of Paul Tudor Jones say 1%, whereas Fidelity is often advising 5% or more. Um, so you're seeing both of these demands come into the play. Still, a lot of America and a lot of the world is not yet in digital assets or aware of digital assets. So that is yet to come. There's still a heavy push on education and access uh, but both are very strong. You've also got a sense of worldwide solidarity around this asset class, and that's going to be a hard one to break. Yeah, and when you talk about uh, people being aware of it, I mean, we have a chart that I think we showed by accident earlier. I think we can show it by purpose now, which sort of shows you uh, <laughs> kind of the story, uh, the, the, uh, the, the interest in people sort of clicking on stories about Bitcoin, about the number of mentions of Bitcoin in stories and quarter, how that correlates to price here. Of course, uh, you know, all the activity was back in 2017, 2018, and that's sort of fallen off now. I'm curious that as more attention comes back into Bitcoin, um, whether that attention you think is actually going to be positive, because it seemed that a lot of the stories that were written back in 27, 2018 seemed to take a somewhat negative stance or at least a skeptical stance on the future of Bitcoin and crypto. The narrative is definitely resonating with more people. And I think that's because we've been able to tell it in different ways. So not only are, are people still focused on Satoshi's white paper, but they're just bringing in the practical benefits of digital assets. We can trade them 24 seven. We can access them on our phones. We can be in our home safe, especially during lockdown. And these are critical things that we're gonna have to learn about going forward as a digital future. So that's really where Bitcoin solidified its place in this market, being accessible around the world in whatever conditions you need. Uh, and as well, we're seeing such supportive infrastructure, the likes of Silvergate Exchange Network now allowing for institutional clients to move dollars 24 seven instantly and free through platforms. Finance US just opened that up for our institutional traders, as well as opening up North Carolina. So you're still seeing these large steps being made towards grander adoption, as well as making sure these use cases are fitting those in need. Uh, in 2017, Catherine, of course, we saw everyone, they went home for Thanksgiving, told their relatives to buy 
Bitcoin and Litecoin and a bunch of others, and then they all went nuts. This year, probably not so much. Are you worried about that? No one gets to gloat about their crypto gains uh, <laughs> around the Thanksgiving table and not having that, uh, that viral network effect this year? Uh, less time talking to my aunts and uncles, more time being able to focus on trading. That's probably what I'm seeing. But no, there, there's going to be a great amount of conversations. Certainly some folks that have left some of their Bitcoin under their couch uh, looking for it now as the price continues to be important. Uh, in the adoption factor. But I, I still see uh, with the lockdown in New York, people are going to need more things to do in, inside their homes and certainly focusing on their financial well-being and looking into really understanding digital assets is an easy one that we're here to help with. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We also kept on the theme of the Bitcoin rally with Castle Island Ventures founding partner Nick Carter. We spoke to him right after the news broke that Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin was asking the Federal Reserve to return unused funds from their emergency lending facilities. Of course, the central bank is pushing back. They they want the programs to be extended. They say they serve a vital role. So we started by asking Nick if this was something that his asset class, cryptocurrency, was paying attention to. I think we worry about it to a certain extent, Joe. I, I think everybody is focused on what inflation is going to do in the next decade or so here, including the Bitcoiners and the crypto folks. <laughs> is it uh, really interesting? Well, how does inflation sort of or inflation trends sort of impact the way you look at uh, crypto? Well, a lot of investors in crypto see Bitcoin, uh, rightly or wrongly, as an inflation hedge, and uh, that's certainly something that a lot of investors and allocators uh, seem to be concerned about these days. Uh, remains to be seen whether or not we will actually get inflation. So far, uh, you know, the prospects for inflation seem fairly dim, uh, but that's definitely part of the appeal for a fixed supply asset where there is no monetary discretion whatsoever. And, you know, the issuance schedule is totally predefined. I mean, it's been noticed that the likes of Square, for example, and some of these publicly traded companies have been starting to look at crypto, Bitcoin, as instead of treasuries in some way and using it as an alternative asset because perhaps they are looking to diversify away from the US dollar. So certainly it speaks to what the Federal Reserve is really doing right now. But crypto has been on a tear for many a reason, large part because finally institutional investors do seem to be getting in, putting a small amount of their money to work, but it's a big seismic effect on the overall Bitcoin market. What are you seeing at play that is driving us up past 18,000? Well, there's endogenous and there's exogenous factors. So the exogenous factors are the macro factors that we're talking about here. The fact that we're in this largely unprecedented uh, monetary environment, which is causing people to fear deeply negative interest rates uh, or fear the potential for inflation. But the endogenous factors are very interesting and somewhat underappreciated, perhaps, 
Uh, you talk about institutional investors getting exposure to Bitcoin. The last time we had a bull, rally, bull run like this in 2017, it was very difficult practically for those large institutional allocators to functionally get access to the asset, yeah. the tools and the plumbing. A lot of this didn't exist back then. There were very few or none. There were no qualified custodians that could help you take get exposure to the spot asset. There was very little in the way of prime brokerage. There wasn't really a robust lending market. The CME futures product only launched at the tail end of that bull rally, and it's very liquid today. So the endogenous factor is something that's being overlooked, in my opinion, a little bit. The fact that the plumbing for the industry can accommodate more capital. Of course, you do need at the same time there to be a good reason to allocate to the asset. Um, and you know that's where the macro element comes in. But what we've been doing and what the entrepreneurs we back have been doing over the last three years or so is actually building that financial infrastructure, which can accommodate capital right. and can make these large investors comfortable with access to the asset class. Nick, I am curious. I mean, go, go back a little bit to that uh, that run-up that we saw in 2017. And, and just, I mean, we talked a lot back then about all the ICOs and the way that Bitcoin was sort of used as a funnel for those. That doesn't appear to be uh, hmm. the same case now, this time around in 2020. Absolutely. And the way we saw Bitcoin trading was as a pass-through asset. It was a vehicle to get exposure to these really exciting ICOs that a lot of retail investors were piling into and exposure to alternative cryptocurrencies that were even more volatile than Bitcoin. And that's very much not the case today. The SEC made their opinions extremely clear on ICOs. For the most part, they consider them to be investment contracts, and they've been cracking down very hard on some of these unregistered securities offerings over the last three years. So there really isn't the presence of, this, of these alternative coins that are being newly launched. That's just not a feature of the market today. It really looks like it's more a function of allocators taking a second look at Bitcoin, right. saying maybe there is something interesting here. Maybe this is a slowly monetizing alternative monetary commodity. You know, maybe I, I should take another look at it. Uh, Nick, uh, six months ago, we saw the uh, Bitcoin having or the rate of issuance uh, newly decreased. Six months after that, suddenly the price takes off. Pretty clear, uh, totally separate things. Can we officially say on air here that? The having was already priced in and has no bearing on the price. <laughs> Say it, Joe, be a I hero. This... <laughs> Say it. A lot of Bitcoiners are going to be very upset with me for saying this, but yes, I don't wow. believe that the having Huge. had a meaningful effect on the price of Bitcoin. It was something eminently forecastable. From day zero, we knew what the supply schedule of Bitcoin was going to be. So, no, I don't believe that an incredibly wow. foreseeable change was a driving catalyst. Yeah. I think the catalysts are outside of the market or related to infrastructure. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
So this week, we also focused on the economic damage being done by the coronavirus and the current lack of stimulus. To put a number on the impact, well, Century Foundation put a report out saying that roughly 12 million people are facing a late December cutoff from aid. Of course, things like a lack of unemployment insurance. It's going to wreak financial havoc for many and complete emotional turmoil, distress for many. We spoke with one of the co-authors of that report, Employ America senior advisor Liz Pancotti, and she started by explaining the upcoming fiscal cliffs. Yeah, so our, our report focuses specifically on uh, pandemic unemployment insurance extensions. Uh, obviously, there are several other cliffs for uh, different sorts of housing and food assistance programs, student loans, all of that sort of stuff. We focus specifically on the unemployment insurance cliffs. So there are kind of two main cliffs. One of those is the PUA, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which extended unemployment insurance benefits um, to gig workers, part-time workers, and kind of people traditionally excluded from state UI programs. And then we also face a cliff of the Pandemic in, uh, Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program, which is a 13-week extension for folks who have run out of their state benefits. So those state benefits vary from 12 to 30 weeks, depending on the state you're in. And this gives you another lifeline of 13 weeks after that, uh, after you run out of those. So we're facing both of those cliffs. We, uh, in the paper, estimate that that will affect 12 million workers the morning after Christmas. Christmas, um, which is a a large number. And even before then, 4.4 million workers will exhaust those benefits um, prior to 1226 or have already. And so there are a couple of programs in place to keep, you know, 3 million workers on after the fact. There's the Federal Extended Benefits Program, which will be turned on. It's a trigger-related program, and so it's not on and yeah, your own state, and so thir- three million of those workers will be captured by that program, but um, so, not not too many of the twelve million. So, Liz, do we have any idea? I guess of uh, I guess how much money gets removed from the pockets of some of these people, these households, uh, if these programs uh, aren't renewed, and it doesn't look like they will be renewed by December, uh, the end of December. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's actually not that much. So in July, we had the big cliff where the $600 a week fell off. Um, and now these people are typically getting two, three, maybe $400 a week. The average payment is about $350 and so, uh, oh, per week. So, you know, these families are losing $1,200, $1,500 per month, which um, is likely 30 to 40% of what they were making before the pandemic, but it will go down to zero, which is a very large cliff. So while the July cliff was very bad, uh, this will only be worse. Uh, and you can only imagine what the pressure on things like food banks is going to be and the like. And do you, what can be done? Do you think in the interim, is there anything that you see in the distant horizon that could be done to save these 12 million people that you're suddenly saying will will, will lose their sort of life-saving jobless aid? Yeah, I mean, so House Democrats passed a bill in May and then have um, have adjusted it since then uh, to extend unemployment insurance benefits for several months after this. Um, it would be nice if the Senate would pass that bill. There's, you know, obviously been ongoing talks since then to, um, you know, extend unemployment insurance benefits among several other key provisions from the CARES Act. Uh, so far, we haven't seen much movement on those talks, and it seems like those chances are a much slimmer than they were prior to the election. So that would be step one. Um, I guess it, you know states are sort of limited here given their budget shortfalls, but states could uh, try to extend unemployment programs you know within state law, but it also seems unlikely given where state budgets and state unemployment uh, trust funds are at. 
So let's go back because at the end of August, uh, obviously we saw the, I think it was the end of August, we saw the end of the UI expansion. A lot of people predicted some sort of calamity in the economy with the, with the withdrawal of that money. But arguably that hasn't happened the way people expected. We continue to see growth. We continue to see decent retail sales. Household balance sheets still look okay. Is this... Uh, you know, as we think about the urgency of this particular cliff, this next round, how is it similar and different to what we've already seen? Yeah, so I guess I'd push back a little bit on the strength of that data, noting that the slope of those lines, you know, the recovery, we were seeing this sort of uh, maybe less, you know, maybe a U-shaped rather than a V-shaped, but we were seeing um, quite stark lines in, right. in recovery moves, uh, in the months prior to the July cliff, and now we're seeing those lines sort of flatten. And I think you know, rather than just having a flattened curve for the increase in, you know, consumer spending or real estate sales, et cetera, we'll start to see declines just like we did back in March and April. Um, and I think that's really scary for a lot of folks at the, you know, at the household level, but also for the broader macroeconomic recovery, it's quite scary to think that, you know, we made all of these gains in the last six months and those could be completely wiped out by this. And with regards to the job gains that we had been making, and we had been seeing some decent progress here, Liz, is there a sense here now that if we do get a sort of a stall over the next couple of months, that that would actually, uh, I guess, change the trajectory of that job recovery. The general sense was that eventually we were going to get back to something similar to full employment, at least uh, prior to COVID, in short order. Is that pretty much off the, off the table right now? I think that, you know, part of that is due to this UI cliff. We'll see a lot of discouraged workers that just never re-enter the labor market and labor force certainly declined based on what we know about, you know, the damaging effects of long-term employment. But another thing I think I'm keeping my eye on is the resurgence in cases. And we're now seeing, you know, business closure orders. We're seeing schools close again. People have childcare issues. So I think, um, you know, not only is this an issue for a lot of labor market conditions, the surging of the virus uh, with no real plan and, you know, a vaccine is on the way, but Know, it's still, I think, six plus months away for the general population. And so I think given where we're at with the virus, it's, un, you know, it's likely that we'll see the sort of rebound that we were or the continuance of the rebound that we were seeing and, you know, the projections right. that we would that we would be back up for the unemployment rate um, back to full employment are, are probably far off. And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.